You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. To begin with today, I am welcoming Natasha Hausdorf, the Legal Director of the, United, of the UK Lawyers for Israel Charitable Trust, um, UK Lawyers for Israel being a voluntary association of lawyers who support Israel and seek to ensure that the rights of Israel and Israelis are respected. And with us also is Professor Gregory Rose, who teaches International Law of the Sea and Maritime Regulation and Enforcement. He also publishes on the regulation of counterterrorism and political violence, particularly the handling and transfer in international military operations of detainees and international legal cooperation for law enforcement in the area of national security. So welcome to you both on the Israel Connection. Thank you, David. So I can hear you both. That's fantastic. And uh, I know we haven't publicised that uh, Professor Gregory Rose would be with us today, but at the very last minute, he's recovered from an unfortunate bout of illness and uh, he offered to uh, to come on the air with us. So very much, uh, very glad to have you with us, Greg. Thank you, David. Uh, I, I was uh, sorry to, to let you down and looking forward to... Uh, to the interview, especially with Natasha, who's a good friend. So, Natasha, to begin with, can you please tell our audience how you go about achieving the mission of uh, United uh, of UK Lawyers for Israel, United Kingdom's Lawyers for Israel? Bit of a mouthful, uh, David. Thank <laughs> you. And and the work the work we do is is likewise not always straightforward. It's a voluntary association of lawyers, as you say, committed to upholding uh, proper application of law to Israel and Israelis. And we respond to requests for assistance from university students, from people in ordinary employment. We deal frequently with public authorities. You may have heard of an initiative here at the UK. Uh, Parliament um, countering BDS motions and resolutions and divestment decisions by public authorities in the form of the uh, counter BDS bill that is making its way through Parliament here. Uh, we work with media organisations and crucially also in the international field with many partner organisations. Um, similarly, they're combating BDS and anti-Israel initiatives in their local jurisdictions. And one of the key aspects that we are grappling with uh, increasingly is lawfare against Israel in the international arena. Um, this has plainly uh, been a common factor at the United Nations, including the Human Rights Council. We've seen it at the International Criminal Court. Uh, and this morning, or at least it's morning for me, <laughs> we're in a position where uh, we've gathered to talk about the International Court of Justice, which is the latest manifestation, unfortunately, uh, of an agenda of lawfare against the State of Israel, which we've also been uh, heavily involved in. And you work together with uh, some other organisations as well, Natasha? We certainly do. Um, we're, we're blessed that we're, we're not alone, uh, and there are similarly-minded NGOs working for the proper application of law to Israel, trying to push back against a lot of the misrepresentations, uh, the abuses of international law, and the inversion um, of international legal principles uh, at international institu legal institutions around the world. Um, 
not just based in Israel, but as I say, grassroots organizations and, and associations of lawyers that we're, we're really privileged uh, to work with. So as you... Yeah, uh, if I might add a little bit there, David, I, yeah. I, I joined UKLFI when I became aware of them. Their work is phenomenal because in the UK and into Europe and also in the sphere of international organizations, they've spearheaded the taking of uh, legal actions using carefully formulated arguments based upon excess of jurisdiction or breach of charitable principles when um, uh, anti-Israel uh, uh, boycott actions take place. And it's a phenomenal organization that's inspired others uh, in Europe. Certainly, certainly has. So as I, uh, well, as, uh, as we heard uh, from uh, Natasha, we're going to focus specifically today on the International Criminal Court of Justice with its objective to establish an advisory opinion on the legal consequences arising from the policies and practices of Israel in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem. Now, would you like to explain to us what this is about and why you are opposing it so strongly? Certainly, David. The, the first thing I need to clarify, of course, I, I mentioned the International Criminal Court, uh, and that is um, a separate arena in which UK Lawyers for Israel contributed to uh, an amicus uh, submission as a friend of the court. Um, but what we're dealing with in the context of the International Court of Justice uh, is, is, a, is a separate matter. It is, if you will, that the court that addresses relationships between states um, it is connected to the United Nations. Uh, and the phenomenon that we're grappling with at the moment is a request by the UN General Assembly for what is called an advisory opinion of uh, the International Court of Justice. This was Resolution 77247, uh, uh, passed in December last year, um, in which the General Assembly made a request uh, which is essentially for a clarification uh, of a legal matter. Uh, as I say, an advisory opinion is uh, distinct from a resolution that the court might uh, reach between states. Uh, if states come to the court with a dispute for resolution, that has uh, legal effect, that a decision of the court in that context would be binding. The difference with an advisory opinion um, is that it is not uh, a legally binding determination, uh, but just that, an opinion. Uh, and the position that we're grappling with is a request that has been made by the General Assembly, um, unfortunately, um, for uh, an opinion in what is essentially a bilateral dispute. Um, it's not an appropriate exercise of the court's uh, power, uh, we say, to opine on a matter where there are significant factual disputes uh, and where this is a matter that is um, essentially for uh, negotiation between the parties. And when we consider the request that has been made by the General Assembly, the big problem uh, is that it presupposes a whole raft of um, violations by Israel uh, including, uh, it suggests, of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. Uh, it presupposes there is a, a, a and I quote, prolonged um, occupation, uh, settlement and annexation of, of Palestinian territory. Uh, it presupposes, as I say, a, a whole host of um, 
legal matters uh, before it asks for a, the court to opine on what the, the consequences of, of that situation should be. And those wrong assumptions uh, contained within the request for the advisory opinion, uh, including that there is an ongoing violation by Israel uh, of the right of, of self-determination or that Israel has adopted measures aimed at altering demographic composition um, of uh, Jerusalem um, or the fact that Israel has adopted uh, what are unfortunately unspecified uh, discriminatory legislation and measures that are referred to, um, unspecified policies and practices of Israel that it suggests affect the legal status of, of what is assumed to be an occupation. Um, so all of that which is presupposed by the advisory uh, opinion request is extremely regrettable. And this has been advanced in a context of extreme discrimination uh, against Israel uh, in the United Nations, which I'm sure that you are familiar with. It's, it's something Greg and I have, um, have unfortunately grappled with it for, for many years. Um, but if just to perhaps summarise, that the, there are big problems uh, that I think that court the court is going to be made aware of, or indeed has been made aware of, by a number of states voicing their concern. Um, and the first one is, as I say, that this is an advisory opinion that is essentially requested in the context of a bilateral dispute without uh, the state's consent. Israel has plainly not consented uh, to this opinion. Um, it's plain that the court simply not equipped to uh, essentially examine what is a broad range of, of very complex factual issues uh, that go to the very history of, uh, of the dispute here. Uh, that is, as I say, assumed in the question that is put to the court. Um, but crucially, and it's important that we highlight this on, on the anniversary of, of the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993, the 30th uh, anniversary today, yes. an advisory opinion of, of this nature would entirely conflict with the existing agreements and the negotiation framework that has been endorsed by the UN and has been endorsed by so many of, of the member states um, of, of the International Court of Justice. Uh, which have submitted uh, similarly um, amicus submissions, as it were, to, to the court on that matter. Uh, and it's simply not appropriate where the court is being asked to assume unlawful conduct on the part of Israel, uh, which we say is, was, is entirely not the case. So, Greg, I'll ask you to hold off uh, further commentary until we get uh, a bit further on when we start discussing uh, some of the... Uh aspect of the uh, submissions that have been made, in particular that from the UK. Uh, I just want to mention at this stage a letter that I had published in the Australian Jewish News, and this is the gist of it. Australia, unlike the UK and Canada, has not made a submission as part of the International Court of Justice's fact-finding stage before an expected advisory opinion from the court on the legal consequences of the occupation, settlement and annexation of alleged Palestinian land. In December, the Australian Labor government voted against the UN General Assembly request that the International Court of Justice provide advice, but it has not followed up its vote with a supporting submission, unlike the UK and Canada, which have strongly signalled their opposition to what the ICJ is doing in their submissions. Labor here was very willing to align with the UK and Canada when it called on Israel's government to reverse a decision to approve new settlements in the West Bank on June the 30th, Clearly, there is a major discrepancy of Australia's foreign policy here with Labor falling out of alignment with its allied partners, the UK and Canada. 
Perhaps you'd like to come in here now, Greg, and uh, make some further remarks because you certainly, uh, I think, feel uh, a similar sentiment. Yes, thank you, David. Uh, I think this reflects a drift in labour policy, which in its most stark and uh, and bitter uh, characterization could be regarded as uh, as trading the jews or um as as was done in other times you know when the sovereign was in need of funds for a war effort there would be a shakedown of uh, the, the the local jewish uh, villages in this case what's happened is that the uh government has had to trade uh, its support for Israel and the Jewish community uh, to the uh, Labor left at the annual conference in order to save AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US trilateral uh, alliance, uh, from attack by the left, uh, specifically in connection with uh, the uh, adoption of a, a nuclear submarine force as part of that trilateral Pact. So that was seen as a higher priority than the uh, maintenance of a um, of a an honest and fair position in relation to Israel, and so we've been sold. Uh, the language that's being used now by uh, the the foreign minister, uh, occupied Palestinian territories, and uh, illegal settlements. Uh, is not language that is a return to the norm for the Labour Party, which maintained a much more even stance. Even though it's been characterised as such, it isn't specifically what has been adopted in the past. It, it's new, it's hardline. And on the other hand, it puts Australia in with the majority of UN members. There are 194 UN members. Um, 56 of them are members of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, which was established with its raison d'etre as the Palestinian cause. It dominates all discourse within the United Nations concerning Israel, and that discourse has been colonized by the Organization for Islamic Cooperation through its influence, its predominantly present, its members are predominantly present in Africa and uh, and Asia. So there are many neighbours, many uh, further afield uh, countries that are dependent upon the markets or upon the oil supplies. And so the influence is powerful and it dominates UN discourse. And so the language that's being used, uh, and, and it's a it's a form of... Um, of uh, psychological operations on one perspective or um, colonization and uh, of, of the rhetoric from another is occupied Palestinian territories and illegal settlements. So that's now Australia's position, putting it out of line with uh, uh, our closest allies uh, other than New Zealand. New Zealand tends to generally prefer to run with the pack, um, but Australia as a middle power and a leader in its region usually takes an independent political line, but it's abandoned that in this circumstance uh, in order to preserve the the AUKUS pact. Uh, I don't know how long you, you want me to continue to speak, mm. but I can explain that... Um, now let's let's move away from uh, oh. just focusing on Australia because we we've got the UK submission that went to the to the ICJ and uh, 
There has been an article in The Guardian that I'll uh, post on uh, this program's Facebook page so people know what we're talking about. Uh, it's been uh, revealed uh, in sa- to some degree by uh, whoever, who knows. Uh, I've uh, heard wind that uh, there is... a. The, the the British consulate in uh, in Israel is not necessarily that that friendly to Israel and uh, could have leaked it to uh, to try and besmirch uh, Israel's position in some way, but but be that as it may, uh, there's uh, I think you're aware of this article in the Guardian, uh, and there are um, remarks there that uh, indicate uh, what the UK's position is in regards to the ICJ and its opposition to uh, following this uh, attempt to. Uh, to tackle this question. Now, the first one is that an advisory opinion would effectively settle Israel's bilateral dispute without the state's consent. And perhaps uh, you can comment on that and uh, with consideration of uh, what uh, Dr. Victor Catton, or is it... Uh, is it Catan. Uh, Catan has uh, remarked in, in, in his where he disagrees. I might pass that to Natasha, who already mentioned it in her opening remarks. Yes, well, the the ability of the court to, to settle anything is um, is is I would say not in question because any advisory opinion is of course not legally binding, um, but but it is absolutely right that it's inappropriate in the context of a bilateral dispute such as this um, to seek to evoke an advisory opinion, um, and unfortunately this is the latest initiative in in the, the lawfare in uh, campaign against the state of Israel. Um, we've mentioned some of the other international legal institutions, uh, but um, this is a, a key next step uh, because it is seen by Israel's detractors uh, as lending legitimacy to so many of the legal arguments that have been advanced, which hitherto um, have not had a basis and have failed really to gain traction in international legal discourse. These abuses of international law, um, misrepresentations of international law against Israel. Um, I attended a a conference uh, under the auspices of the United Nations um, at which I witnessed individuals discussing uh, the failure, uh, as they were concerned, of uh, the label of of apartheid against Israel to gain traction and, and to stick. Uh, and the general consensus at this conference was not to worry. Up until now, they had been unable uh, to credibly, uh, they say, call Israel an apartheid state because they lacked a legal opinion to base it on. Uh, but they anticipated that the opinion of the International Court of Justice would provide them uh, the basis on which to uh, successfully tar Israel with, with the brush of apartheid going forward. And, and that is... Um, the the hope and the anticipation that that Katan and others um, who have supported this initiative uh, are are counting on, are betting on that this further step in the lawfare initiatives against Israel uh, will enable them to advance these abuses of international law as arguments uh, against the only Jewish state. So how is this uh, inquiry from the International Court of Justice going to proceed from here? Do you want to map out uh, what's going to happen from this point of time? Well, so far, the, the state submissions that you mentioned uh, that were submitted over the summer um, are due to be responded to by states that have made um, in initial uh, documents available to the court, uh, and that is going to be at the middle of next month. 
Uh, and thereafter, we're certainly in the hands of the court as to the uh, process that they adopt um, and the, the timetable that they'll set going forward. Uh, but I should say that it's certainly hoped amongst many in the international community that the reports of some of the submissions that have been made to the court are taken seriously uh, by the court, and not least um, the fundamental difficulty that the court is being asked to opine on matters where it simply doesn't have the information available to it, uh, and worse still, that the information that has been provided to the court, including by a, a, a whole host of NGOs that are politically motivated on this subject, is simply unreliable. And this was a problem the last time the court was asked to provide an opinion uh, in relation to Israel, the 2004 uh, so-called wall opinion, which was the court uh, seeking to make an assessment of Israel's security barrier, which was built in response to a wave of suicide bombing attacks that were terrorizing the Israeli civilian population in Israel. The court in that case made determinations which were plainly uh, wrong on a factual basis before we even get to the legal considerations. And the Israeli Supreme Court in the Beit Sarik case gave a very clear analysis of where the International Court of Justice had been misled uh, as to the factual basis that it reached its advisory opinion in that case on. We're seeing, if anything, a worsening of the material that has been put before the court uh, its unreliability is plain, and it would be extremely irresponsible, um, not even considering all of the uh, protestations that have been made towards the court of the inappropriateness of an advisory opinion uh, in this political context, but in the context where the factual information that the court has before it uh, is so biased, so uh, wrong, uh, and has been um, in many cases manufactured in order to achieve the end result uh, that I've explained Israel's detractors here are seeking, uh, it would certainly be hoped that the court would think twice about engaging in this political process and demeaning itself, because it's extremely important that our international legal uh, institutions uh, maintain their credibility. Uh, and if the ICJ isn't allowing itself to be used as a political tool in this case, uh, it is a, a real indictment uh, for the credibility of, of international law as a whole. So will the submissions that have been made to the inquiry be made public at some point? Um, ultimately, I think we're expecting when the oral hearings uh, are, are, are to take place, we're expecting those to be published at, at that stage. Uh, but that may not be for many months. Okay. Now, uh, we've got to wrap up in a couple of minutes. Uh, can you please give our listeners how they can support the great work of uh, UK Lawyers for Israel, Natasha? Um, well, uh, any uh, members, certainly, um, and uh, volunteer lawyers are always very gratefully received. Um, we've certainly been able to liaise in Australia with organisations uh, combating um, BDS activity in the past, and we're very happy to continue to do so and, and give the benefit of, of the extensive experience of, of our lawyer members. Uh, of course, Australia being a common law-based legal system, uh, in many cases there are similar arguments that can be advanced in Australia that we uh, use to great effect here in the UK. Um, we always welcome volunteers, both lawyers and non-lawyers, 
Uh, and we're very happy to add people to our mailing list if they're interested in our work and they don't have time to volunteer. Uh, there's a great wealth of information uh, that we're able to circulate, not least on our webinars. Uh, and I'm very glad that, that Greg has participated in, in a number of those so that our members in the UK and around the world have had the benefit of his experience and expertise. Uh, so I look forward to continuing that relationship with him and with any other of your listeners that are keen to get involved from Australia. Well, thank you both very much for your contribution today. And uh, I certainly wish you uh, good health and uh, Shana Tova to both of you. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So you've been listening to a discussion with uh, Natasha Hausdorff representing the UK Lawyers for Israel and Professor Gregory Rose, international lawyer based at the University of Wollongong. My next guest is Samuel Hyde, who is a writer and a researcher based in Tel Aviv, Israel. Throughout his career, he has worked at various think tanks and research institutes in Israel and South Africa and for others based in the US. Hyde writes regularly for various media outlets. I'm delighted to welcome Samuel Hyde to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Now, Samuel, I uh, first cottoned on to you when I saw that you had done a response to an article by Benjamin Pogrand about his views on apartheid. But uh, unfortunately, we couldn't proceed. Do you want to explain uh, why? Uh, well, I'm currently actually working on a on a project regarding the apartheid claims against Israel for one of the think tanks that I work for. So while that process is ongoing, we don't do any public appearances on that as particular topic. But for anyone that wishes, I suppose, to read the article which came out before I started on this project, they can find it on Haaretz. That's right, yes. And I'll put a link uh, afterwards on the, the Facebook page so people can go and refer to that. But not to be... Uh, Undone, uh, we decided that we were going to find something else to talk about. And you uh, are a writer and a researcher based in Tel Aviv, and you write about a lot of different things and have a lot of areas of expertise. So do you want to basically give us an idea then of, of what is your panoply of uh, subjects that you can deal with? Uh, yeah, I think I, I write very often a lot of these topics uh, uh, interweave with each other. So I write a lot about Zionism, I write about the West Bank settlement movement, Israeli-Palestinian relations, and Israel's domestic political scene, as well as socio-political factors and different elements of Israeli society um, at play. So a lot of the time, actually, all, the, all those topics actually interweave with each other. And you publish your work or your work is published in quite a number of publications. Do you want to give us an yeah. idea of uh, how widely you can be read? Uh, Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, and Newsweek, the Jewish Journal, uh, Fathom Journal, Tablet Magazine. I think those are predominantly where I've been published. There, there are others uh, probably escaped my mind, but that's pretty much where a majority of my articles would, would be found. So we might try and get you into the Australian Jewish news one day. <laughs> I would love it. I like writing for, for whoever I can. Okay. Now, you edited the book written by a leading thinker on Israel, Zionism, Foreign Policy and Education, 
namely uh, Dr. Ernest Wilf, uh, who many will certainly know of, this book titled We Should All Be Zionists. So what is that book about in particular and what part did you play in its publication? So I was involved in some contributing writing for it and I was the editor and, and we, we published the book together. We basically started out together. I remember meeting a nurse. I'd been given her number by someone just after I'd made Aliyah from South Africa. And we sat down and met and I, I you know, I was asking her advice because I knew she had been involved in think tanks and research institutes. And I just wanted to get some advice. I thought it would be a half an hour conversation, but it turned into this four or five hour conversation. It just seemed we really got on and, and thought very similar. Um, and, and when I was leaving, she basically said to me, do you want to work on a book? And I said, yes, in my life, but I'll probably write it in about five or 10 years. And she said, no, I mean, with me right now, we can start next week. And I've been a fan, like many people of Aynat, um, growing up. And uh, that was obviously a great opportunity for me that I was going to jump at. So, so the book is titled We Should All Be Zionists. And it focuses on Zionism in the 21st century. It obviously does date back. It focuses on Israeli politics and the path to peace with the Arab world. So we look at the Abraham Accords and the changing dynamic in the Middle East, uh, the, the shifting paradigm due to that. Right. And you've also been a contributing writer on another book with uh, Annette Wolf uh, titled Political Intelligence. But this one is not there to be read yet, is it? Uh, no, no. This one's still in the works. This kind of came about as a result of two things. Number one, she gave a course at a university in America, which one it's escaped me. I don't want to mention the wrong, the wrong university, but she gave a course basically on her political career in the Knesset. Uh, and she always says her political career and why it failed. Um, and, uh, while we were, while we were writing, we should all be Zionists. We were kind of brainstorming a lot of things and speaking about a lot of things. And this kind of came about with us reworking on another book together, which, as you mentioned, is called Political Intelligence. And it basically a very short summary of what it looks at is just like, uh, in business, uh, profit would be your currency that people trade in. Uh, so in politics, power is the currency that people trade in. So we, so we go really into power and how power functions at the heart of politics. We make the argument that political intelligence is its own form of intelligence, just like you have emotional intelligence, social intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. We make the argument that political intelligence is its own form of intelligence. It doesn't matter how many PhDs or doctorates you have in political science. Once you get into government, it operates very, very differently. For example, to something that I do as a researcher, as a someone who creates policy and, and writes. So when is this expected to be out on the shelves of well, bookstores? I'm not exactly sure that we have a date right now. We're kind of in the middle of the process and, and we haven't really put ourselves under any immediate pressure on, on when it would be released. So hopefully sooner rather than later, I, but um, I, I'd say maybe within the next year to two maybe yes. maximum. You're extremely busy because you're also the co-author of another up-and-coming book, I understand, titled <laughs> Seizing the State, the West Bank Settlement Movement's War on Israel. Yeah, this is true. I'm, I'm working with a very close friend of mine named Blake Flayton, and um, it looks, we basically start the book uh, tracking the first 100 days in office of this current government, and and that's that's important to look at because in, in most democracies, governments are granted a 100-day grace period. Critics and rivals kind of give them 100 days of grace. And 
because of the actions of this government, I suppose that that's not what played out in Israel. It doesn't really play out in most deeply divided nations, but certainly not at this point in Israel's history and time. This will lead naturally into the topic in which we're speaking about uh, that uh, we kind of believe that the reform or the so-called reform is not just a, a legislative reform, but it has roots in in um, the West Bank settlement movement. And in, that's why it's essentially called seizing the state. So that will become more apparent from my perspective on that as we go through uh, what we speak about today. But that's basically the fundamental idea of, of tracking of tracking what the role of the, the settlement movement is in this in this uh judicial overhaul. Yes, so that is certainly uh, leading into what we're going to discuss. But before we get into that, I've got one more question that relates yeah. to you and what you generally do. You're also working at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies. What uh, yes. are you doing there? I'm, I'm mainly working on policy, policy analysis and policy writing for them uh, with regards to Israel. Often when you're working on stuff with Israel, uh, Israeli-Palestinian relations comes into policy issues there as well. So, so yes, I write for them and I uh, edit uh, other, other writers' work. And then I look into policy analysis and creating essentially new ideas in like a think tank environment on how to solve certain problems, whether it's conflict resolution strategies or whether it is looking at uh, essentially the, ref the reform uh, and, and deciding if we are to actually do a reform, what would actually be needed, what would actually solve the problems and, and developing certain strategies around that. Right. Now, I'd like to refer to an article that you wrote earlier this year titled Dispelling the Myths of the Settlements that was published in the Jewish Journal. We, we want to talk about something that's actually out there already uh, yes. when we, we delve into this, the, the idea of, or the understanding of uh, the settlements and, and what the effect they are having on Israel today. Can you tell us, going back now, about the settlement of Chomesh that was yes. uprooted along with uh, Gush Katif in Gaza and three other West Bank settlements? It was part of the government's disengagement plan back in August 2005. Uh, this gives us a bit of history. I think you've written the initiative to repeal sections of the 2005 disengagement law to rebuild the Chomesh settlement poses a threat it could lead to a future in which political violence takes precedence over the rule of law. So has this uh, judgment uh, to disengage been completely reversed? Uh, it has. It was reversed actually towards the end of March, if I'm correct, March or early April. As you mentioned, this is essentially a piece of legislation that's put, put, put forth to the Knesset. And, and it's since passed in, in, into law to repeal sections of the 2005 disengagement to, to build this particular uh, settlement in Chomech. Uh, but the story actually, it actually doesn't start there because it, begins, it starts three years earlier in 2020, uh, when Israeli settlers essentially begin illegally moving into this area. They squat there, they take over private Palestinian property, uh, they're resorting to various degrees and, and levels of violence against Israeli police and hostility towards Israeli soldiers and intimidating Palestinian civilians. So now that this legislation's passed, it doesn't only legitimize the creation of a new settlement in that area, which violates the disengagement law. It also conveys a, a clear message to the settlers that these actions in which we just mentioned, the taking over private Palestinian property, attacking Israeli security forces and, and intimidation and, and, and real brutal violence against Palestinian civilians, 
is essentially acceptable behavior to attain similar political means going forward. And the settlement movement is very interested in those similar political means. I mean, we've even seen now, uh, so far, there's been 12,855 housing units approved across the green line, essentially, uh, since the beginning of the year. So it is all about territorial expansion. And essentially, one could say it's twofold. There's religious reasons, but there's also reasons of preventing the uh, the future existence of any Palestinian state in any part of the land. When you send a message at a government level, when you legitimize the actions of extrajudicial violence against civilians as well as towards the security forces by granting those people exactly what they required rather than abiding by the rule of law, that's what I mean by uh, political violence is taking precedence over the rule of law. Just to add to that, sorry, it, this, this also has great potential harm going forward to actually reverse many of the gains that Israel made from an economic perspective during the disengagement law that signed. It was a diplomatic effort that actually greatly benefited Israel uh, and was acknowledged by, by the international community. So uh, the international response to this going forward would also have uh, had have possible adverse effects on, on the state of Israel. So you contend that the relative quiet, I'm quoting you now, the relative quiet regarding the Chomish proposal is not indicative of Israeli public support for the settlements, but indifference thanks to two intertwined myths. Mm -hmm. So do you want to explain what are these two myths that uh, are related to the Israeli uh, settlements? Yes, I'd say the first is irreversibility. The idea essentially is that the Jewish settlement movement, the project in the West Bank has gone beyond the point of no return. And the second is risk risk of confrontation. So evacuating the settlements and the settlers uh, would escalate into a civil war. I will add that there's there's actually a third misconception, and that would be that the settlements not only bolster security, but also function as the first line of defense, ensuring the safety of those living within Israel proper, let's say. So, I, I mean, I can go further into detail and debunking why those are myths, but I, I, those are predominantly to me for all the work and the research that I've uncovered and looked into Israeli society. Those are kind of the three continuous security, irreversibility, and, and fear of uh, violent confrontation that would escalate into a civil war. Yeah, so you shared with me um, an article um We've been discussing essentially the article in the Jewish Journal so far, but you shared with me another article, Settlements and Security, a work of fiction. Is this, mm-hmm. this article, is this article, this is soon to be published, is not yet available? Yeah, it's actually soon to be published next week. And I'm also publishing it in the Jewish Journal because that is where this previous article went. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd publish the next article there. And I think a lot of what I'm speaking about is being increasingly spoken about within the state of Israel, but but I think it's a conversation that therefore needs to be brought forth towards the diaspora as well, because it requires, you know, some reevaluation within within the Jewish world as well and the way in which in which the Jewish world engages with the Israeli settlement movement. So on the first myth of uh, irreversibility, uh, you make some remarks there about which particular uh, settlements that are out there currently uh, will be able to remain. What mm-hmm. um, can you give us an idea of, of what those are and and what percentage of the uh, settlers or settlements they uh, they comprise? 
Sure. Uh, I mean, when you look at any of the uh, the agreements and proposals that Israel's made towards the Palestinians, for example, that has been supported by the US and, and the European Union and, and the international community, as well as when you look at any of Israel's clear policies over the last two decades, let's say, you now have these skeptics who essentially believe that the settlements are irreversible, and they argue that the main reason for them being irreversible is essentially that they cannot be evacuated the size of their population. But but the truth is, like, the actual number of settlers, as you've, as you've mentioned, is not actually related to whether they can be evacuated or not. So you have roughly about 440,000 settlers in the West Bank, which makes up pretty much 14% of the total West Bank population. Uh, that's just including the Palestinians. And most of them, probably 80 to 85% of them, live in what are known as the settlement blocks. So the, the settlement blocks are actually areas adjoined to Israel's sovereign territory, so adjoined to what some would call the Green Line, and they would not actually be up for evacuation. So you're actually looking at between 80 to 85% of settlers would remain in the very homes in which they currently live under any future agreement, or even if Israel had to take a unilateral measure by drawing its final border. Okay. And on the other myth, which is the issue of security, which I think we'll probably delve into a bit uh, deeper, the idea is that uh, the, the myth, as you said, is that Israel's yeah. security is, is, is not really being preserved by keeping these uh, settlements in place. And do you want to say why that is the case? Sure. I mean, I'd argue that it's not only not being preserved, I'd say it's, it's a total burden. I, I think, but to, to understand the argument I'm going to make, we have to trace the origins, essentially, of, of this uh, illusion, because it's a conflation of Israel's two distinct roles in the West Bank, which is essentially its military presence and its civilian presence. Those advocating for the settlement movement have essentially gone to great lengths to blur this crucial distinction, leaving many to believe that without the civilian presence, the military cannot carry out its duty to effectively guard the state. Even if we are to set aside, for example, the phenomenon of violence that's been happening in the West Bank, with one of about 40 examples is Kawara, which was the, the Palestinian village that was burnt down by 400 settlers, the opposite is actually true. The settlements don't serve Israel's security. The Israeli security forces serve the settlements. Most of Israel's security forces in the West Bank are not actually engaged in fighting terrorism, but rather in guarding settlements. Uh, there was a Molad study, and it was uh, it was it quoted the former Deputy Chief of Staff Moshe Kaplinsky, which said that an estimated eighty percent of IDF forces are actually in the West Bank are actually engaged in safeguarding settlers and settlements, and only twenty percent in fighting terrorism against Israel proper. The other thing that was catalogued in a study by the Institute for National uh, Security, which is one of the best think tanks on security in the world, was that at any given time, between 50 to 75% of Israel's overall combat forces are deployed to the West Bank, which is essentially more than all the security forces used on every other border put together. That would be the Arabah Strip along with Jordan. That would be... Gaza, that would be Sinai, that would be uh, Jordan, Syria. When you think about that, when you think about all those borders, we've got more more security, you know, triple the amount of security stationed at the West Bank than all those other borders. I don't see much evidence supporting the idea that the settlements serve Israeli security. I think Israeli security serves the settlements. With uh, this question of the uh, security, the one of the 
big concerns and perhaps you can uh, go some way towards uh, waylaying what would be one of the biggest objections, I think, is that people will refer to what happened uh, with Gaza and the withdrawal from Gaza and they would say, well, uh, the the West Bank, if Israel was to do the same kind of thing in the West Bank as it did in Gaza, uh, the situation would be even more perilous because of the narrow dimensions that Israel has uh, next to uh, the uh, the West Bank uh, territories. Do you want to perhaps respond to to that concern? Sure. So I think first and foremost, I don't think that the Gaza disengagement was the wrong decision. I think the way, the manner in which we disengaged was the wrong model. As I've said here, there's, I like to deconflate the difference between the military presence and the, and the civilian presence. Firstly, because you've got Hamas there, who uses Gaza as a, as a rocket launch pad. I mean, I know this. I find myself in a bomb shelter a few times a year, <laughs> but over 70% of Israel supported the disengagement in a referendum uh, just before Gaza. And that was because rockets were already being fired before 2005 from the Gaza Strip when Israeli military and civilians were still in Gaza, which is something that has kind of just seemingly been forgotten along the narrative and Israeli settlers were being killed in their homes. So if you look at the, the, the death rate of Israelis due to Gaza violence, between 2000 and 2005, which was a very violent time, you had 147 Israelis die between those five years. Since the disengagement, which is not five years, but now 18 years, you've had uh, 67 Israelis die. So we've essentially, during the, disengage, during the disengagement, have saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives, because especially at this time, when you look at what's going on in the West Bank, it's very possible that we would have had a third intifada by now. Firstly, there's that. But as I said, I don't agree with the disengagement model that was done in Gaza. I think that the reasons for doing it were correct. I don't think that we should have remained in Gaza. Uh, I think that we'd have hundreds, if not thousands, more Israeli civilians dead. And as I said, they were still firing rockets. What I think was the problem was the, the military evacuation. So what you saw that was different, actually, in the disengagement of northern Samaria, the northern West Bank, which is where the Chomesh settlement is, the, the settlement we originally started speaking about, is it was a different disengagement model. So the settlements were actually evacuated and the military remained. And you saw a rapid decrease in violence for a period of 15 years up until the settlers illegally moved back in and squatted and violence has since erupted. So for 15 years, that 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 process of disengagement was actually the least violent area in the territories. And today, three years after the settlers uh, moved back in there, it's the most violent area in the territories. So I think what you can do here is you can still say that some form of disengagement uh, or civilian evacuation will be in Israel's best security interest, but Israel needs to maintain an interim military presence um, as long as there's no Palestinian sovereign there or as long as the Palestinians have not agreed to lay down their arms against the Jewish state. But Israel does need to be putting its security before it's, before any sort of political ideology, and therefore uh, civilian evacuation is in its own best interest. So if in uh, some future epoch we end up with a Palestinian state alongside Israel, the Palestinian state would not, I understand, be happy to have Israelis allowed to trample on uh, on their territory at will like they do now, 
Mm. So uh, that, of course, would um, mean that we were in a totally different space than we are now in terms of the enmity between the, the two the two uh, nations. Of course. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And and also, look, you've got like you've got three options for disengaging for any evacuation. You have the option of, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in unilateral measures. I believe that Israel actually, after Camp David, the failure at Camp David, Tava and Camp David II, uh, with the Palestinians rejected all these proposals. Uh, I believe that Israel needs to start operating in its own best interest. And that means from the perspective of security, economically, a legal perspective, diplomatically as well. And I, I do believe that drawing a final border close to the green line, but as I've said, which incorporates 80 to 85% of the settlers, uh, is in Israel's best interest. Also from a demographic perspective, you're currently sitting at 50% Jewish and 50% Arab, if you include the Arab Israeli population, the Palestinian population. But what many don't realize is that the Palestinian population is not only younger, but also has a higher birth rate, even than Haredim, for example. So that 50-50 is not going to last very long. In a one-state idea, or once Israel de facto annexes the territory, in order to not land up in a one-state apartheid, for example, one would need to absorb the Palestinian population in and give them full civilian rights. And I'm not sure when you've got a majority Arab population, even if it's 52 to 48, if you can seriously consider that Jewish state, firstly. And I'm also not sure how you're supposed to maintain Jewish sovereignty as a even if it's as a fractional minority and any country that's that's had a ethnic majority um issues escalating to mass civil war you can look at yugoslavia lebanon syria all these countries are great examples you are literally going to be either having to give up on the democratic framework of the state of israel or on the jewish framework of the state of israel which are, are two factors that are inherent to the zionist project from from the pages of Herzl right into its implementation into the Declaration of Independence and beyond in practice in Israel. So that's why I've, I've actually said, and I, you know, I make really no apologies for the statement that the settlement movement and its goals to expand across the territories, which puts all these things at risk of what I've spoken about, actually represents the greatest anti-Zionist activity by any group of Jews since the, the, the creation of Zionism itself. I know we focus on Jews who support the BDS movement, and that's very important uh, to to be focused on that. But in practice, uh, this the, this movement actually physically puts the Zionist project at risk. There are accusations that settlers are running rampant in the West Bank and harassing and intimidating Palestinians, with the Israeli authorities turning a blind eye. And I'm saying this based on an article that came out in Haaretz very recently titled Settlers Have a Very Effective System for Forcing Palestinians Out of Their Homes by uh, Abishai Moha, who happens to be an anti-occupation activist. Would you uh, call yourself an anti-occupation activist? No, I uh, I see the necessity for a military occupation. Do I think that the situation on the ground should remain an occupation? For sure not. I mean, an occupation, there is always going to be human rights violations within an occupation because it is a military system that is put in place against a hostile civilian population and essentially one could say an enemy population. So there's always going to be opportunity for abuse of power and human rights violations. Do I see it as a, as something that is desirable for Israel in the future? No. Do I see it as something militarily that is, um, one could say, 
necessary for the for Israel in the, in, the, in its current predicament? Yes. Uh, so I think I differ from the anti-occupation activists. I agree with them on the settlement movement that there should be a settlement evacuation, but I take a different stance militarily to them. I do agree in some in some aspects with his characterization, and I'll tell you why. I think in some cases, when it comes to certain parliamentarians that are currently in the ruling coalition, I think it's worse than turning a blind eye. One only needs to recall Bezalel Smotrich, who actually called to wipe out Huara the day before 400 settlers entered the town and, and burned the village to the ground. There was another attack that happened, another violent clash in the Palestinian town of Burqa, which is next to the Israeli settlement of Otzion. They're very close to each other where a 19-year-old Palestinian civilian was killed. And the the person who was involved in the killing, who was actually arrested, was a guy named Alicia Yered, who was a former spokesperson for the Otzma Yehudib party. Uh, ben Vir leads that party. Yes. And Ben Vir's response was that these men are heroes and they should be rewarded, not that they're murderers who should go to jail. Um, so this tracks back to what we originally spoke about, about political violence taking precedence over rule of law. So I agree. I mean, there's been 25 serious attacks of that nature of what we've spoken about in the West Bank. And I think that the, the, the great issue actually is that even people that acknowledge the flaw in this, they tend to want to say that uh, it's just another sequence of like violent incidents by the Hilltop Youth, uh, which is a radical lawless group of like young settlers. And they're known for their aggressive stance towards Palestinians. And they also believe that the state of Israel should be replaced with um, a religious state called the state of Judea. So that kind of ideology is also very much linked to the judicial overhaul. But I also think that it's that's a, that's an incomplete image because what we're what we're observing now happen in practice is actually um, a meticulously planned out strategy set in motion over a decade ago. I'd say when I was doing research on a project, I, I discovered like uh, I wouldn't say I discovered it. I found it. I'm sure other people have seen them before. Well, obviously other people have seen them before, but there's official publications from uh, the settlement movement itself, their regional councils in the West Bank, which uh, speak about price tag attacks, about how they're going to start a battle on several fronts that the government won't be able to control. And they initiate and encourage rioting and damage to Palestinian property and uh, attacks and murder of Palestinian civilians. As I said, now you've got um, parliamentarians and government who act as the national representatives of the settlement movement and their councils, and their actions actually align. Yeah, I think that there's Israeli moderates that are turning up some sort of blind eye to it. I think that there are Israeli extremists who are actively supporting it and promoting it. And then I would say, though, that the IDF, for example, has been very against it which has created a lot of tension between the chiefs of, of the Israeli security forces and the government, which indicates once again that the government's motivations in the settlements have very little to do with security. Daniel Hagari, who's the spokesperson for the IDF, the chief spokesperson, actually said that this nationalist terror is actually pushing civilians in the Palestinian Authority who are not traditionally involved in terror to terror. And the head of Israel, Shin Bet, uh, Ronen Bar, he, uh, he echoed the sent and he warned Netanyahu that uh, this increase in construction, as I said, we've actually seen unprecedented animal construction with 12,855 housing units approved so far for the year, and the settler violence that is going along, that's actually fueling Palestinian terrorism. So you've got your security establishment who's made their position clear on this, and your government who's, in many cases, is egging this on or 
Well, I just want to sum up by acknowledging that we're sitting on the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. And uh, on the international stage, we repeatedly hear the claim that Israeli settlements are illegal. So I've been speaking with uh, Samuel Hyde, a writer and researcher who lives in Tel Aviv, about the issue of Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Uh, in the time left, I cannot play the last few minutes of my conversation with Samuel Hyde, but you could hear me starting off uh, with a question regarding the Oslo Accords, which we have the anniversary of today, and I'll make that full interview with him available as a separate podcast. Uh, frequently regurgitated mantra that the settlements are illegal and under international law and a major obstacle piece is what I asked Samuel to respond to. You can listen to this program or any previous programs going going to the JAIR website, j-air.com.au, and looking for the Israel Connection under podcasts on the main menu there. And please consider supporting what we are doing here at JAIR by becoming a member. Just go to the JAIR website to join. It only costs $54 per annum and will help us keep broadcasting for your benefit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Maybe you can make this a New Year's resolution. I would like to wish all my listeners Shana Tova Umetuka. And until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.